0: The following Noble Path Talk is part of an informal series offered to Sangha members over Zoom during monthly online meetings for those who've been practicing at the Zen Center of New York City, Fire Lotus Temple. Each Sangha member shares their experience of how they came to find the Dharma and how their practice has been developing. We hope you enjoy the diversity of voices and experiences. Thank you for listening. Good evening, everyone. My name is Tommy Snoot. And my pronouns are he and him. Part one, preparing the ground or the order of the marshes and of the ocean. And the sea and the marsh are one. How still the plains of the waters be. The tide is in his ecstasy. The tide is at his highest height and it is night. And now from the vast of the Lord will the waters of sleep roll in on the souls of men. But who will reveal to our waking kin the forms that swim and the shapes that creep under the waters of sleep? And I would, I could know what swimmeth below when the tide comes in on the length and the breadth of the marvelous marshes of Glen. Sydney Lanier from the marshes of Glen. Deep down south in the bite of Georgia where the barrier islands cling to the mainland with thick marsh mud that reeks of salt and sulfur and where the ocean is bathwater warm and murky brown from that same syrupy mud. Great grandmother live oaks cloak the earth with their shawls of Spanish moss. The blood of the Lord drips thick from the lips of just about everyone. And it is said that the blood of slaves can still be seen scraped onto tabby ruins if you kneel down and look close enough. That's where this journey began. These marshy shores have a silent beauty that can seem timeless. Lord knows that they have had just about everything wash up on them. But if you come back enough times, day after day, the beaches will slide up and down the coast over the years without you even noticing it. You'll learn to know deep down in your bones that that beauty is just like the tides and the beaches. It comes in and it goes out, always rising and falling, always a little higher and always a little lower. You never know what it will wash up. Sometimes it rubs rough against your skin like sand in your sheets, a gritty reminder of truth. Sometimes it moves around, and bends branches over in the sea breeze. And sometimes it's ocean sculptor can sweep your ass up in a rip tide in the blink of an eye. Every child knows you're doomed if you try to swim against it, you must swim with it. Best to just roll over onto your back and let it float you right out of its angry artist's fury. Let the hands of the Lord just cradle you right out of the rage, knowing then that only sal- the only salvation is to just slow down and relax. Now on beauty, here's the thing. On a still moonlit night, if a person wades out into the ocean to chest high water with the porpoises swimming right up to them, there is no beauty, no rapture, no fear, no beginning or end, just awe. Things become very small and very large all at once. Sitting on the beach afterwards in the same moonlight, that salty sense will dry off on your skin. Holding your cupped hand up to your ear, you can still hear it whooshing, remember. The pelicans are up with the sunrise, skimming along the top of the ocean, riding their own draft. Part two, Roger, the Pointer. Trying to be happy by accumulating possessions is like trying to satisfy hunger by taping sandwiches all over my body. Roger J. Corliss. He had a mop top of gray hair that in memory kind of recalled Ringo Starr. And if you went to his office, the little placard that had been given to him had been replaced with a small, neatly typed note card that said, Roger J. Corliss, Monty Python professor of funny funny stuff. Here's how it went down. Sitting next to him by happenstance at the student run coffee house, in a smoke clogged normal meeting, no less, he was to the eye horrifically out of place. Not dreadlocked, not tide eyed or any of the other hallmarks of the attendees, not stoned, indeed ferociously sober. Hands folded calmly in his lap and observing it all with a devilish grin that everyone knew him will always remember. He knew precisely where his mind was and precisely why he was there. Through a thick Londoner's accent that was choked occasionally by a stammer, he proclaimed, I'm Roger Corliss. I'm the faculty advisor. All student-run organizations have to have a faculty advisor, you see. I don't smoke marijuana, but I do very much enjoy poking my thumb in the eye of the administration, and I thought this is one of the best ways to do it. A devilish grin growing wider as he said so. According to Wikipedia, Roger Corliss made significant contributions to interfaith dialogue, particularly on the subject of Buddhist-Christian dual belonging. And he was a co-founder of the Society of Buddhist-Christian Studies. But that's kind of really an afterthought to his being. He was, he is, somewhere still, a Mahasattva. It's not important to know all the ways Roger helped shape the lives of so many people. But in a few short years, he imparted a lifetime of knowledge that's still to be sorted through. Roger always had time. It seemed that there was never a moment that he didn't just, well, appear. Looking back, it was as if a magnificent journey was about to begin, one that only he could see. And Roger was calmly and at the same time hurriedly making preparations, preparing you, hiding little gadgets in your pack that would come in handy somewhere down the road, tucking away a vast detailed blueprint in one of the pouches that only later, during the chanting of the Mahaprajna Paramita Heart Sutra, for the first time would trigger, what the heck is going on? Tears with the utterance of form is exactly emptiness. There it is, a glimmering north star piercing through the fog of memory. Roger had been all along without telling you, charting the course, historically, but then also in the way it would likely manifest. Shakyamuni, Avalokiteshvara, Nagarjuna, Mahayana and Theravada, Bodhidharma, Chan, Seon, Zen, the awakening to the middle path, the Four Noble Truths. How a young prince's encounter with a sick person, an aging person, and a dead person all led him up on a journey to find true happiness. And how, as Alan Watts, who Roger seemed to divine at times and often recounted, after training for many years in some instances with ascetics and practices that brought him near death, found himself one day by a river in exhaustion. And it was there that in near desperation that a young woman farmer served him a bowl of milk soup. And he sat down under a tree and the burden was lifted. But what's one to do, Professor Corliss? Go wash your dishes, Tommy, he said with a giggle. Part three, Moo. What do we want to want? Yuval Noah Harari. Act one. New York City has, depending on your math, maybe two or three million doors. Opening, closing, inviting, graffitied, broken, slammed. This particular door at 500 State Street was picked out of pure logistics. It opens at 6 a.m., which for a parent of small children is really the only time when you can tackle something with somewhat fresh eyes and fresh mind. Originally, New York had been chosen as home base because it was home of punk rock, home of the fist, of adventure, of the torch and the kerosene that's set to authority. Now it's just home, but still an enchanting mistress. The path to the door was breadcrumbed by questions, and there was more well before, to be sure, but the last mile was seated with ideas of free will and of the emergence of artificial intelligence, smouldering embers that seemed to consume all rare open spaces for reflection. Act Two, a scene in New York City. The characters Julie, the lovely wife, Lisa, her friend, Tommy, the stooge. Julie. We have to get Tommy home so he can go to bed. He has to get up early tomorrow morning to go visit the monks. Lisa. The who? Julie. The monks. He goes and meditates with Buddhist monks now. Lisa. Really? When did this start? Who are these monks, Tommy? Tommy. There are some monks. It's mostly just sitting in the dark and meditating. There's some walking around and chanting. But mostly just sitting. Lisa. Chanting? What do you chant? Tommy. That's it's some random stuff. Some of it's in Japanese. Lisa. Are the monks Japanese? Tommy. No. Julie. They're a bunch of hippies, and they have funny names. What are they again, Tommy? Lisa. Funny names? Oh, my God. Honey, you've joined a cult. Julie. I'm not worried about it, but I told him I'd draw the line if he shaves his head and starts wearing a robe. Tommy. I don't think it's a cult, at least if it is. It seems to be hundreds of years old, at which point I think you pass out of cult status. They aren't asking for money, and there isn't any weird sex stuff going on, not at least that I can tell. It's mostly just sitting around in the dark and meditating. Lisa, but you wear robes? Julie, do you have a funny name? How do you get a funny name? Who picks it? Tommy, you don't have to wear a robe, and I don't have a funny name. Julie. You're going to leave me when the kids get older to become a monk, aren't you? That's your plan, your dream. Lisa, what's with the funny names? It's definitely a cult. For the first year or so, this exchange was repeated at least a dozen times in different contexts, sometimes more gingerly and less directly, depending on the audience. Mom, you do what? Sometimes with outright laughs. One or two more free-spirited friends were supportive. People quit asking. It eventually dropped out of conversation. Act three, there was never any target, no designs on enlightenment or nirvana. Candidly, it was just nice to sit in a quiet place without screens or a phone ringing. There were, however, three conversations or at least pieces of talks that, well, they were like looking at your watch when you're in a dream. The first, the bait was shortly after walking through the door for the first time. A question was posed, who are you? At the time, this question engendered a cynical New Yorker's internal dialogue. Thanks, old man. Thanks for the softball of a philosophical question. Are you really asking the question with a Brooklynite inflection? Who do you think you are? That might be fun. You know, throw some grenades, mix it up a little. Little kids still get these hard rubber balls and party goodie bags. And if you throw them with any intention, they will bounce and rocket around like a lit firecracker. This question, who are you, hit its target squarely, its utterer utter, first firing a diamond bullet that pierced through any cynicism without the hero even realizing it. And then it just kept pinging around like one of those balls, begging to be chased. And it showed up again in another talk about Alice. It just wouldn't stop. A bottomless question that held, if even for a few minutes, gave the feeling of looking over the edge from the top of a skyscraper. The next, the hook was a passing comment in another talk, a momentary reference to what was happening, unrelated to the talk itself, really. This is mind training. That single utterance was enough a characterization that in a single stroke swept aside all the ceremony and all the brocade and left just a physician's clinical spotlight. This is all we're doing, observing the mind, just observing, very simple, unimaginably difficult. The third pass came in remarks on, on the void, a reference to Mother Teresa's letter in which she said, Jesus has a very special love for you, but as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. Listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer, but does not speak. And then in commentary on the letters, the remark from the teacher, no one knows what goes on in the minds of others. This was, well, it was a bit of what you might call a Neil Young moment. A recall of the lyric, once you're gone, you can't come back. That's not what Neil Young meant, but that's what it felt like. Like jumping into the abyss like there was no choice now but to do just that. Act four, great faith. Sometimes it seems just like a matter of chopping wood, just keeping at it, watching the tide rise and fall, seeing what washes up, noticing how the shoreline of the mind slowly washes out and slides up and down over weeks and months and years. It's not obvious that anything is really changing. It's most certain things are changing. And it becomes clearer and clearer that the perception of the changing is where all the happening seems to be happening, but it's not where anything is happening at all, except for our mind getting its own way. Each day, you look at a drawing of 10 oxen that was given to you, and you wonder where you are in the pictures, trusting that, and just humbly keeping at it, you can come alive in each of them. Great doubt. Things always go sideways. An introdu- introduction to Shanti Deva by your teacher, and everything is going great. Your teacher taps out, and there you are, left holding what feels like an ancient self-help book. You wonder if your teachers aren't really like most mechanics you've dealt with. Grumpy, not really sure what is going on themselves. Having to order a part, which seems like code for, I don't know what's going on either. You wonder why we're bowing down to a bunch of old men that no one can pick out of a lineup. And then if the math is right, we're pulling all sorts of shenanigans themselves, men being men. You get lost a lot, like that time in Joshua Tree, when a wash looked like a trailhead, and two hours later and low on water, you realized you were in the deepest of shit. You hold your hand up to your ear, and you hear the ocean again, the ocean's silent roar in the desert. And remember that the depth in the desert and the ocean are just mind, and that to. To survive the riptide, you can just lower your eyes, relax, and ease out of it. Great determination. It is well before dawn, sitting in stillness. Small steps and small eyes are watching. They can be felt. A whispered, can I blow out the candle, daddy? She comes over and sits in your lap, and it is blown out. She yawns the deep yawn of a child that has released everything back to sleep. And she just snuggles there in the cradle of your being. You carry her back up to bed. And walking back to the cushion, you hold your hand back up to your ear. You look deeply into the darkness. You see Roger sitting there, cross-legged on the beach, a giant wooden skiff next to him. Pages of blueprints are spread out before him, his hands folded in his lap, grinning ear to ear. You bow once. Who are you? He asks grinning broadly. The tide is rising. The tide is falling, you respond, covering all but the tips of the marsh grass and revealing the flotsam and jetsam resting in the mud. A second bow. Where is your mind? He asks now, giggling. It's looking for the moonlight reflected in the surface of the ocean, you answer. A third bow. And as you rise, the grin and giggling have transformed into a sudden deep calm. Now, What will you do? He asks with piercing directness. Go wash the dishes. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page or scroll down and click on retreats.